Hello, Russell Davis here in the latest podcast from the APG celebrating 50 years of planning. Uh, this time I'm talking to Katie Mackay Sinclair, who's a partner and strategist at Mother, uh, and we have about half an hour of very high quality content um, where she tells us um, stories, ideas, insights about some of the fantastic work she's been involved with. We do mention in the uh, interview the idea of maybe embedding some of the audio from, from some of the ads she talks about, but I've decided not to do that because I think uh, the SoundCloud copyright algorithms are so aggressive that they might just take it all down. But instead, I urge you to Google the ad she's talking about. Um, there's a the recent Greenpeace ad and some Boots number no. 7 work, which is well worth looking at. Um, also in the interview, Katie mentions uh, Passion Pictures, a production company, and she's not quite sure if they're the right one. They are the right one. So full credit to Passion Pictures. The audio is a little echoey. Agencies love big meeting rooms, um, but it is well worth listening. Uh, so I hope you enjoy it, and thanks to Katie. So I might just crack on. Go ahead. So the first question is about... Um, a piece of work that's personal to you, that there's some sort of personal connection, a thing that that isn't necessarily something you did, but something that you feel connected to. So what would that be? I find this one really hard to answer because I immediately thought about some of the first campaigns I ever worked on, things that I did when I was at Publicis for the Army. Um, Also, the first time I ever did a factory visit and seeing cream eggs bounce along and then look like they were committing suicide, which got us to the whole thought of eggs getting their goo out and goo aside very, very long time ago. Um, But then I realized if I had to think about campaigns I wasn't involved in that were really personal and perhaps unbeknownst to me at the time are the reason why I'm in advertising. There's two of them. And the first one goes all the way back to 1989 and it's, for quite a gross product, uh, Campbell's Meatballs. And there was an ad with Steve Davis that in my imagination bears no resemblance to what it looks like because I watched it on YouTube yesterday. But essentially, um, the little boy in the ad clearly doesn't really like vegetables, so his mum has constructed snooker balls along with the meatballs. Now in my imagination, they were playing snooker with the food. That's not what happens, but it did mean that when I was wee, my mum would make us meatball snooker for our dinner. So clearly that's when you spilled to advertise to children and it had a massive impact on my brother and me. Um, And then the second one was when I was at university, I spent my third year in Germany. The first six months I studied at a German university Then I spent three and a half months in Munich working on a German teenage girls magazine. And then I worked in a translation agency in a town called Ludwigsburg near Stuttgart. And the translation was mostly boring. There was one fun bit which was writing, um, translating a catalogue for a shoe brand, which I obviously would say. Um, And then we had to translate the higher ads for McDonald's because they had to send them to the US for approval. And I can remember really pondering whether they could actually mean that the chicken nuggets were now made with only white meat. Um, 
I was thinking, what? But they always looked white, so what did you do to the brown meat to make it white? But that's when I thought, oh, hang on a second, advertising might be quite interesting. So then when I went back to Durham for my fourth year, along with applying to book publishing in the civil service, I thought maybe I'll see if I can get on an ad advertising graduate scheme. <laughs> so that, those two were the things that I was like, if I go back down memory lane, probably both of those, neither, I don't even remember what the McDonald's campaigns were, but had an impact on me because they made me think that advertising might be something I was interested in. And did you um, try and track that? Okay, brilliant, thank you. What's, um, so the second one is uh, about a piece of work with an interesting backstory or something where you know the popular idea of, of how it came to be is not in accord with the reality or something like that. So what, what would be what would be your answer to that? Uh, there are a couple of campaigns I've been involved in that I would love to tell the real story, but I don't think I can. Um, <laughs> and I, but I do still I have two answers to this one. I promise I don't have two for all of them, but I do for this one. Yeah. Um, one because I think there's something that we can all learn from it, because um, sometimes really great work looks easy and the second because I think from the outside it looks like a blinding glimpse of the obvious and yet it was actually really hard to get to it. Mm -hmm. So the first one, um, still perhaps one of our best pieces of work on IKEA is Playing With My Friends which is the, it was a music video but the, the version that everybody knows is the children dancing with giant toys and essentially it's a message about adults and children both behave better when they sit around the same table and at the end the adults turn into the parents that they are rather than the toys that the children see them as. A lovely sweet story performed phenomenally well in fact I think it's one of if not the most effective piece of work we've done for IKEA um, still recalled now and I think it was in 2014 only ran for two bursts but it almost didn't get made because we created a year's worth of work and we pre-tested pre it at that point um, with Milward Brown and all of the work flew through pre-testing apart from the piece of work that wasn't playing with my friends that we had written to talk about entertaining and dining so we had no time at all to create something brand new and because IKEA had significantly increased their media investment, they promised the business that no copy would air without pre-testing. So I think we had maybe 10 days to come up with something new, and then we had to do a boredomatic that we pre-tested. So we came up with this idea, play with my friends. Um, we found the track because all of these, all of the campaign was we find a music, a uh, piece of music that will have the lyrics that will tell our story and then we tell a brilliant story that utilises lots of IKEA products against that music. And we created perhaps one of the worst boredomatics I've ever seen, but in that length of time you don't necessarily get any uh -huh. other option. And it was definitely the worst pretest I've ever seen. Red lights everywhere, no one gets it, don't bother, it doesn't make any sense. And then what do you do? Because the first one on this uh, brief had bombed. We had to make this one work. 
but also we knew we had something amazing in the actual story. So we didn't accept that failing on every key indicator in our pretest was the end of a really great piece of work. Mm -hmm. Instead, we said to the clients, we've lined up groups in London and Manchester all weekend. Please let us use Qual to understand what we could do to improve it or to see if the reaction that we had when we first heard it and the reaction you had when you first heard it is true. And this really is stimulus effect, the fact that we were rushing it, that it's not a complex story. And it flew through Qual. But that wasn't still the same kind of validation that the business had been promised. So when we got our director on board, the wonderful Duva Wilson, he agreed to record all of his rehearsals. And so there was quite a lot of choreography and dance ensembles, and we had to make sure the product integration was right. And so my role as a strategist, while the creators and producers were on the shoot, was to take those rehearsal tapes and talk the clients through how we were addressing what we'd learned in the research. Mm. And at every stage, we recognized that we were pushing them to create something that hadn't passed the pretest. And then it's one of the best pieces of work we've ever made. So not every single time when something bombs in pretest can it be salvaged. Mm -hmm. But if I kind of feel like it's been a lesson for me that if your back's against the wall, don't believe that it died if you really did feel something different when you first heard it. And if the client did too, sometimes you can appeal to the emotional side of someone, get them to remember how they felt before their rational brain took over, and use every method you possibly can, whether that's other forms of research, persuasive arguments, or actually all the way up to the point of making the thing show that you have taken their concern seriously, and then you might end up being able to make something that was going to be wonderful all along. So that's, that's one that I think from the outside everyone's like, playing with my friends, it just feels so Ikea, it's just mm -hmm. so right, it's the mm -hmm. best of that body of work that when you did those music videos, how did the rest happen? <laughs> like, right. no, 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 it's the one that almost didn't. And did you learn what it was about how you'd pre-tested it that made it fail? Um, the board domestic was terrible. Right. Um, and I know we always get told that it doesn't make any difference and consumers can work around it. The style that we had to use purely because of availability of people was quite insipid. So the illustrative so style, the illustrative style right. Was, right. was insipid and a bit more beigey and brown and the toys were brought to life in a, mm. a maybe a bit more Enid Blyton retro charm way that lacked the I guess the dynamism and contemporary yet nostalgic feel of the toys that we ended up using right. and the bright technicolor optimistic positive world that we knew we were going to execute the film mm. in because that's how Ikea feels um, then I don't know I think perhaps also having tested everything else in a 3D animatic our collective ambition for what a boardomatic could deliver was significantly higher than what it really can. So we were trying to make tell too complex a story, trying to fit in too many product interactions in a boardomatic so you couldn't really tell what was going on right. and probably trying to touch too many balls at, at people. Mm. Um, but the basic ingredients were worth fighting yeah, for. Yeah. Um, Very good. Okay. What's the other one? So the other one um, is our campaign for Bailey's. Uh, don't mind if I Bailey's, 
which essentially has moved Baileys from a dusty cream liqueur into a dynamic treat for all year round. And I think looking at it now, I'm like, yeah, well, obviously, like it's part cake, part booze. It's like the most indulgent thing there is. But when we first started working on the Baileys pitch, the brand's positioning and campaign for quite some years had been about empowering and championing women because it was seen as overwhelmingly a female drink. It was the kind of language of the day that brands needed to have a higher order purpose and look for that mission. And it, it made sense, but it wasn't working. And it wasn't working to turn around declining sales at a time where people only thought of Baileys at Christmas time. And I guess that's the, the reason I mention it too is because I think sometimes we can get too wrapped up in thinking about what the brand's mission or mantra in the world should be and we entirely forget that the thing consumers most like about the brands that we shepherd is the products that we create. And just like that story at the start about the cream eggs throwing themselves off the conveyor belt, sometimes going back to the product is where you find the answer and it might be an old-fashioned way of looking at what planning is, but I do think that when you're stuck, don't look outward into the world, look inwards and try and find something in the product or in the, the way the product's made, a truth that you might be able to leverage to give it a renewed chance of thriving in the world. And I, I guess the... The Bailey's story is a series of radical transformations. So from that dusty liqueur at Christmas time to a treat that can be consumed all year round, topper of cheesecake in your coffee, um, in countless numbers of ways that I don't think we'll ever run out of recipe videos. It's from like doing a Christmas blockbuster because it felt like that's when everyone buys it, that's when we should be talking, to recognizing that communicating at Christmas is important, but you can do that really effectively with 20 seconds and a whole host of social and digital content. But we should be talking throughout the year, otherwise we're never gonna turn the volume around. And then I think finally from thinking that Christmas was the big trigger to recognizing there could be millions of triggers to treat and that we could create an entirely new landscape and category for the brand that would open up innovation pipelines and turn around its fortunes. And I don't think we ever would have got there if we had still thought that our role was to champion and empower women. Mm -hmm. So you were, you were talking them out of a mission and a purpose, basically. Yeah, but to not say that purpose is bad, just recognizing that the Bailey's purpose is much closer to the product truth right. than to a purpose in wider society. And that doesn't mean that their role in the women's prize is not really important. It's still a dimension of the brand. It just needn't be the way in which we trigger consumption. I think and how did you get there? Was that by, like by virtue of being in a, in a difficult spot? I or? think in part they were in a difficult spot. So the brand had been in decline, I think for nigh on 10 years, mm -hmm. post-recession, um, and it didn't look like any of the levers they were pulling were gonna turn that around. Um, it was a global pitch and a demanding brief that asked for a way to drive consumption throughout the year, not just at Christmas time. And a provocation from the clients that there was a campaign thought a long time ago that was cream with spirit. 
and it was all about the attitude of the women that um, were the Bailey's women. Um, and they said, maybe we've been too much about the spirit and not enough about the cream. Which then we went back to look at the cream and suddenly started looking. And we had lots of different roots within the pitch that where we are now isn't necessarily what won the pitch, but we were on that journey towards it. And then when we were appointed, we did a lot of work with the clients on semiotics of treating, looking at Diageo demand spaces, really exploring how we could show up in the world rather than just jumping straight into it, um, looking with the media agency on at, at what are the trends in food and drink. Because like food and drink is basically the new cats on the internet, and what could we learn from that? What, uh, how could we look at trends in the treating category around the world, and what could a Bailey's twist on those be? So it's been years of learning so almost three years now mm -hmm. and the first outing we weren't quite totally in the treat space and some of it worked some of it didn't work some of it was too surreal so instead of allowing that to go for a little bit longer we were under the pressure to turn things around so we pushed even harder and, and changed so yeah I think it was um, it's a bit like the they're both the same I guess the examples Playing with my friends, we saved it because we had no other choice other than to save it. Mm -hmm. Bailey's, with our clients, we were able to transform the way that brand and product was seen because if we didn't, it was in a bad place. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So sometimes I, I think there's actually a line in our IPA paper that says that when you're at that deep and a deer, that marginal gains won't cut it. It might cut it if you're like an Olympic cycling team, but when you're in trouble, you have to try and do something radical. So, yes. Brilliant, okay, that's great, thank you. Um, okay, so the third one is something that you think deserves more attention, something from the past or something neglected or something people should have a look for. So this was a hard one to answer. And I have a campaign that was a mother campaign. We no longer have the client in the building. But I do think that what the team here did with it and with the clients was before its time and also gives some really interesting lessons about recognizing what a brand's actual role in the world is. And so it's the number seven ready campaign which I think is some of the most spectacular work made in the beauty category, but I don't think anybody's really ever seen it. Okay, will we find it on the internet? Yes, if, we go and look? if okay. you Google number seven ready, you'll find it. And it came from the place of recognizing that the beauty industry as a whole has created this totally bizarre language where women lie on carpets and writhe around in lipstick commercials and they stare longingly into the distance as they put their mascara on and they open their mouth and close their mouth but don't actually say anything that they're always walking somewhere but actually never getting anywhere that really they exist in this world where nothing happens apart from they get ready for the nothing happening and the only thing they're judged on is how they look and the number seven perspective was that skincare and the cosmetics is just part of your 
every day onto something much more meaningful and more important. So it's you getting ready for whatever you want to be ready for. And so the first campaign um, used a ballerina who was a prima ballerina uh, as a teenager and who retired and then came back in her 50s and I think she's called Alessandra and we, ha we had her dancing and we created a hologram of her younger self and she dances with her younger self and then mm. out dances her younger self and it's like a different dimension it's not anti-aging she's mm -hmm. looking the best she could be um, we had Chimamanda talking about Colors Cosmetics through the lens of feminism and how for a long time she was told she shouldn't care about how she looks and she shouldn't wear makeup but then she realized that that wasn't true and it was shot beautifully and we have a tree blossoming as she's talking about um, Colour Cosmetics. We had uh, one of the only female stunt women jumping through a building talking about anti-aging. Um, we had a phenomenal spot shot by Juan Cabral with an uh, Olympic champion fencer and you don't actually see her face but it's about why she wears makeup while she's fencing hmm. and how it makes her feel more confident and more ready but I'm sure you can imagine in the hands of Juan Cabral it's spectacular that within the quarry throughout the fight her opponent turns into bursts of colour cosmetics it's it's so beautiful and so striking. And then the final one um, is a champion surfer who, it's another skincare commercial, so what would be classed as anti-aging. And it's her talking about the challenges that she faces, but that aging isn't one of them. And the special effects to have her actually climbing up a wave as if it's a mountain are quite phenomenal. And I think in a category that can sometimes seem tone deaf to the context and the way women's roles are rightfully changing in, in um, both in wider society and in the way we represent them in advertising. I think it was a really, really provocative perspective on beauty that perhaps didn't get the credit it deserved. So why, why not, do you think? Why, why are we not all, why is it not famous? I don't know. It's a really good question. When I was thinking, why did it not get talked about? I don't know. I feel like, for whatever reason, it didn't get the coverage you might expect in the trade press. So then it wasn't necessarily known, so it didn't get shortlist and didn't win at our local awards, so therefore had no chance on a global stage. And that might be because it's a beauty brand that's owned by a retailer that's not mm. necessarily seen as up there with the big boys. I, re I really don't know. Um, but I really, I hope that now Boots and Number 7 are with Ogilvy and I can't wait to see how they continue ready because I, I hope that it will get recognised and will continue to go from strength to strength because it's, for me, it's a, it's a game-changing campaign thought in a category that could do with some game-changing yeah, ideas. Yeah, yeah. How, long, how long ago? Oh, this is going really well. <laughs> so <laughs> I the do last, last question. Yeah, well done for doing that. <laughs> last question. What's the piece of work of which you're proudest? This question is really, really easy. Okay. Um, yesterday, 
a piece of work launched that we have been working on with Greenpeace since the start of this year, and it's called Rangtang. Uh, it started from a conversation with John Sovin, who's the executive director of Greenpeace, because we had done a campaign with him and a coalition of energy providers last year uh, to encourage the government to move away from nuclear energy and go to offshore wind at a time when the pricing structure for offshore wind was totally being renegotiated and it basically became a bargain. So we advertised it like it was a sale. And we invited John and his wife and some of the other Greenpeace clients to join us for Mother's 21st birthday. And at our 21st birthday party, which was a retrospective of all of the great projects that Mother has done off its own back, I chatted to him saying, we loved that, but we'd like another opportunity. We want another chance to show you what we can do. Ideally, this time one where um, it's a really tough, meaty challenge, because we loved it, we'd love to do more. And he called me a week or so later and said, I might have that opportunity for you. We need to find a way to draw attention to the fact that the commitments to using sustainable palm oil by some big multinational brands by 2020 aren't going to be met. Palm oil is a crisis of the level of plastic, and yet there isn't a widespread recognition, acknowledgement, or discussion about it. And palm oil is in so many of the products that we all use and consume every single day. We need your help to make it something people care about. I was like, in, brilliant, okay, we'll do it. And so we started working, um, wonderful team here who all got really passionate about it on lots of different ways of looking at what the actual impact of destructive palm oil is and essentially it's destroying the rainforests. But I think for as long as I can remember we've been told that we're destroying the rainforests and that felt kind of far away and somehow horribly inevitable and not something that necessarily we could find a hook in. But the consequence of destroying the rainforests is that up to 25 orangutans every single day are losing their lives. And orangutans are one of the closest to us in terms of kind of DNA and like their facial expressions we recognize. They're our closest relatives in the animal kingdom, or one of. Um, but we've all seen so many campaigns that try to make you feel sad about beautiful animals dying in their habitat. We've seen that lots. We've seen and we all know, I think, that shock uh, charity ads don't necessarily drive action. We felt how oh, there must be a different way of telling this story. There must be a way that we can create empathy, but turn that empathy into action. And we chanced upon the idea of a children's story. A children's story about the impact of rainforest de um, destruction for palm oil that would somehow connect it to the plight of orangutans and make it feel that it was within our gift to do something about it. So the team here wrote a phenomenal children's story. Um, we worked with, I think it's Passion Pictures, I'll check. We worked with Passion mm. Pictures to create a hand-drawn animation and through their network of wonderful ambassadors, Greenpeace asked Emma Thompson if she would voice the children's story. 
And she said, yes, straight away, no qualms about it. And all of it was made possible by an anonymous donor. Mm. We don't know who asked Greenpeace to create a campaign that increased awareness about palm oil and specifically looks to focus on how it could prevent the extinction of orangutans. But when that anonymous donor saw the children's story that we'd written and then saw the animation, they said they would invest more money because they want the version of the children's book that we have done to be in every single school in the UK. Wow. And having earlier on said that it was the boredomatics fault <laughs> that playing with my friends <laughs> didn't go through, I saw boredomatic before I saw the actual film and I wept. I cried my eyes out to the point where I could hardly breathe at a boredomatic. So it taught me the lesson that you don't ever say in a boredomatic can't, <laughs> can't create emotion. <laughs> you just have to have the right story. It also made me realize how sometimes seemingly beautifully simple the answer can be to a really complex problem. And it makes me more proud than anything that this campaign has touched so many people already and will touch so many more that could actually make an impact in the world and that it came from somebody just thinking maybe we can tell a story that would appeal to children and adults alike and that would turn what seems like a really, really far away problem into something we all can understand. So that's, there's lots of things I've been proud of in my time at Mother. There's lots of initiatives we've done off our own back where we've been able to tackle causes that I'm, I'm passionate about. But this one, I think because it's not just the cause, but it's what we've created at the same time, I'm, I'm blown away by it. That's brilliant. Thank you very much. That's a very good thing to be proud of. Thank you very much. That was brilliant. Thank you. My absolute pleasure.